0: Well, good morning, church. How are we doing? Good. Awesome sauce. That's the best response I've heard. Um, So you have to correct me because I believe this is just my luck. So I looked in a pew Bible to give the page number before last service. And in the entire sanctuary, I had the one old pew Bible. So we've updated all of them, and they're in the ESV. So I believe I gave out the incorrect page number. So I think it is page... 1,008, but uh, if the page number is not right, then it would be easy to just give you the scripture. So I'll be in Mark 11 and verse 27. So the title will say, The Authority of Jesus Challenged. So we're actually going to carry over into verse 12, and there's quite a bit of verses here, but there's uh, some great application and some great meaning. So just for the sake of time and so we can get to it, I'm going to go ahead and begin reading. Uh, chapter 11, verse 27. So here it says, And they came again to Jerusalem. And as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him. And they said to him, By what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you this authority to do them? Jesus said, I will ask you one question. Answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me and they discussed it with one another saying if we say from heaven He will say why didn't you believe him, but if we say from man? Then they were afraid of the people for they all held that John really was a prophet So they answered Jesus. We do not know and Jesus said to them neither will I tell you by what authority? I do these things and he began to speak to them in parables "'A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it "'and dug a pit for the winepress and built a tower "'and leased it to tenants and went to another country. "'When the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants "'to get from them some of the fruit from the vineyard. "'And they took took him and beat him "'and sent him away empty-handed. "'And again, he sent to them another servant, "'and they struck him on the head "'and treated him shamefully.' And he sent another, and him they killed. And with so many others, some they beat, and some they killed. He still had one other, a beloved son. Finally he sent him to them, saying, They will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him, and threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Have you not read this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. And they were seeking to arrest him, but feared the people, for they perceived that he had told the parable against them. So they left him and went away. Wow, that was quite a bit. Um, So before Pastor Nathan left, he gave you guys a passage last week, which verse 26 was missing. So, he preached from a passage that had a missing verse, and then he went on vacation and left me with 33 verses to preach. So, I just want you all to know that. And then he made fun of me saying, well, you come from a Baptist background, so either you only have five minutes to preach, or it'll be like a 50-minute sermon. So, um, that was the joke he left me with. But um, he actually did a really great job last week in uh, leading us in the um, understanding that Jesus cursing the fig tree... And at first we might not understand what that meant, but now we know that it was a a sign of Jesus' righteous judgment coming. And it was a warning to Israel as as a warning to us. And so here Jesus is in the temple and he's before the chief priests and the elders. So just to set the tone, um, Jesus has healed people. He's cursed the fig tree. He's went into the temple and flipped over tables righteously. Um, As Pastor Nathan said, he wasn't hangry. So he's done all of these things, and the chief priests, um, they're not the biggest fans of him. If he was leaving to go to another job, um, the chief priest wouldn't write him a letter of recommendation for his next employer. Um, but why? So it's important for us to understand this. So Jesus, doing all of these things, he threatened the chief priests and the elders' status. He threatened their wealth, and he threatened their lifestyle that they had come to indulge in. So what you have to understand is they kind of had it made. They were like on cloud nine, made in the shade. They had money, they had status, they had respect, they had the nicest seat in the temple, they had the nice robes, the nice meals, everything. They were living the dream. And everything Jesus was doing was challenging all of that. So they finally said, all right, we have this really comfortable lifestyle and Jesus is threatening that, we've had enough of it. So what do they do? They challenge Jesus' authority, and they say, um, in our day and age, it's equivalent to if you've ever heard somebody say, well, who made you the boss, right? Or who put you in charge? We usually say that to somebody that we don't like taking orders from, like, who are you? So that's essentially what's happening here. They say, who gave you all this authority, or whose authority are you doing this under? And what I love in studying this is that Jesus' very response shows his authority, Let me tell you how he responds, and then I'll explain. He says, not only does he not answer them, he says, but I'll answer you after you answer my question. So I'm not going to answer you until you answer my question. And then he asked them the question, was John the Baptist, when he baptized me, was his power from heaven or was it from man? And what's beautiful about that is, and maybe a way for us to understand it a little better, is... um, If you have kids or grandkids and they've ever asked you for something, they want to go somewhere fun. They want you to buy them something. They want you to take them somewhere nice to eat. So if my kids run up to me and they say, We want to go to Chuck E. Cheese. We want to go play video games. We want to eat pizza. We want to go. We want to go. And instead of me answering yes or no, I, because I'm the dominant, authoritative parent, right? I respond with a question and I say, Are your chores done? And I say, is your room picked up? Is your bathroom picked up? Is your laundry put away? Is all 100% of your homework caught up? And that's essentially what Jesus did. He showed his authority by asking them a question. And so here's what happens. It's kind of funny. Um, it's, I'm trying to imagine it in my head because they're in front of a large crowd. And it says that they speak to one another and kind of convene. Which is weird. So Jesus asked them a question, and they're like, hold on, just give us one second. And they kind of come over here, and they huddle up, and they're whispering so nobody else can hear. And they're like, what are we going to do? And so here's what happens. They're kind of like, well, if we say his power came from heaven, then he'll say, well, why are you not believing me? Why are you persecuting me? Why are you challenging me if my authority does come from heaven? Or if they say, no, John the Baptist, his power and baptism came just from man. Well, this large crowd in the temple, they all knew John the Baptist was a real prophet. They adored him, right? And so they're really in a lose-lose at this point. So Jesus has set a beautiful, I love it, beautiful trap for them, essentially. And so here's the best they can come up with. They're in their football huddle, these super educated, legalistic group of chief priests and leaders. Here's what they come up with. We do not know. That's, that's hysterical to me. Like when I was studying this, I laughed. So if my kids say they want to go to Chuck E. Cheese, I say, are your chores done? And they say, we do not know. Number one, they know. And number two, I know. And the answer is no, right? In that situation. But, and so essentially, here's what Jesus responds when they say, we do not know. He says, well, since you won't answer my question, neither will I answer yours. I will not tell you whose authority I do this under. So Jesus says, since you can't answer mine, I'm not going to answer yours. And what's beautiful about it What sets up this next part of the passage as we open in chapter 12 is that all Jesus was doing there was kind of thwarting them, dropping the hammer, saying, no more challenging my authority. And it happened in front of everybody. So Jesus said, no more accusing me of doing these things in the name of demons. No more my authority comes from heaven. I know it. They know it, even though they wouldn't admit it, right? Oh, we don't know. But they knew. So Jesus has set the tone. He's speaking... And doing these things from the authority of God in heaven. And so he carries right into a parable. And what's awesome about parables, is we know that they're earthly stories with heavenly meaning. And in Mark, this is actually the only parable recorded in Mark. And so Jesus speaks of this parable, and he says, There was a man who planted a vineyard. He built a fence around it. He dug a pit and built a tower. Now, immediately, we're only two sentences into this parable. The light bulb should have been going off for these chief priests and these elders. Only two sentences in. They should have said, this sounds familiar. Something deeper is going on here. But they didn't. So let me illustrate it to you this way. If I was telling y'all a story and I said, once upon a time, there was this really big city. It was suburban. It was super populated, super crowded. And they had these two tall towers. And one day, tragically, a plane crashed into one of them. And then about an hour later, tragically, a plane crashed. I don't even have to keep going, right? We all know I'm talking about 9-11. Why? Because we lived it. We saw it. It was so impactful. It's embedded into our memory. We can't ever forget that tragic day. It's a memory seared into our brain. But what's important is just as much as that memory we can't forget. And it took me four seconds to kind of jog your memory, and you immediately thought of 9-11 and the towers. That is how embedded the Old Testament scriptures were to these chief priests and these elders. That's kind of how they, or in part, how they got to the point of where they at. They knew the scriptures. They should have immediately drawn what Jesus was reading from, which was Isaiah 5. And Isaiah 5 is actually a sermon that Isaiah uh, speaks, the Lord speaks to him about judgment on Israel. So essentially, what Isaiah 5 says is, The Lord planted a vineyard. He cleared out all the stones, he put a nice fence around it, he dug a pit, he put up a watchtower. This is literally mirroring so far, right, the first two sentences. If Neptune Beach's greatest landscaping company came out to your property and cleared some land, and it looked beautiful, and you were ready to plant a vineyard, this is essentially what the Lord's saying he did for the nation of Israel. He gave it every opportunity it needed to produce fruit. And yet, in Isaiah 5, he says that it produced Sour fruit or nothing of value. So the Lord is righteous to let that vineyard be overtaken, let it be ravaged, let thorns eat it up. It's not producing fruit that he expects it to produce, so why should he waste his time maintaining it? And this is exactly what Jesus is referring to is Isaiah 5. So the light bulb should have went off and it didn't, and it's going to later in kind of a funny way to me. But as we continue in the parable, Jesus says that the man went to another um, country, or some translations say, on a journey. So essentially, this farmer bought this land, cleared it out, hired tenants, paid them a wage to maintain it. And this was normal at this time, uh, we understand historically, that they would have an agreement to where it would be anywhere from one-third to 50% of the produce or the fruit of the harvest. So the farmer would come back in about five years, history tells us it would take five years, for this vineyard to really start producing fruit of value. And so finally, he's off in another land, and he said, hey, I spent a lot of time and money planting that vineyard. It's been about five years. Let me send somebody back to get my fair share. So he sends a servant back, and what happens? It says he was beaten. They rejected him. And then he sent another servant, and the second servant, even worse than the first, the Greek word alludes to that his head was bashed in. He was beaten so severely. And then, it continues on. The next servant, they killed him. And as we pause, before we continue in the parable, this is a direct mirror of Israel in the Old Testament. The first servant, the second servant beaten worse, the third servant killed. This represents the prophets that the Lord had sent to Israel to warn them. They rejected them. They beat them. Worse and worse and worse. Actually, Isaiah, which Jesus is drawing this parable from, was rejected so harshly he was sawed in half because their hearts were so hard and he was speaking through the Lord to them and they didn't want to hear it. They rejected him. And so he sent many others. Now, I'll pause. I didn't say this at the 9 a.m., but if I sent servants and they were beaten and killed, I'd probably either go figure out what's going on or stop sending servants. But again, this farmer says, well, let me keep sending servants. Some they killed, some they beat. Until he had no servants left, he's done his final one, Scripture says. It says he had one other, his beloved son. Now, it's interesting that Jesus uses the word beloved son in this parable. Because when Jesus was baptized by John the Baptist and the voice of the Lord came out of heaven, he said, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. So as if we couldn't pick up on it already, Jesus, the beloved son, is the beloved son in this parable. And so, as the Lord is the farmer, he's going to send his beloved son. The Lord sent his beloved son, thinking maybe they'll respect him. Maybe they'll give me what's rightfully mine. Unfortunately, it doesn't work out that way. And Scripture says that the tenants said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him. So what that means is that that farmer had been gone so long, they probably alluded to he probably was dead. They haven't seen him in years they thought his son was going to come back and have the right to the inheritance of the entire vineyard. And mind you, they already had 50% of this vineyard. But they were so greedy that they were willing to kill the son because they wanted the whole thing. So, so it says they took him and killed him and threw him out of the garden. Then Jesus says, what then will the owner of the vineyard do? He'll come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Now that was a sign directly to the leaders he's speaking to. The tenants being plucked out and removed and replaced with others was a sign that God was going to remove these leaders from their authoritative position of leadership and replace them. So remember that cloud nine they were up on, and Jesus was threatening, and they didn't want to come down? Now Jesus is dropping like a really big truth bomb on them. They're going to be replaced. And to make it even worse, they're going to be replaced by Gentiles in many instances. And so this is finally where the light bulb goes off. I love this because Jesus says, have you not read this scripture? Which is hysterical to me because they had read it like hundreds of thousands of times probably. They knew the entire Old Testament in their head. And he says, have you not read this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing and it is marvelous in our eyes. That is a direct quote from Psalm 119. So finally, Jesus had to just keep bringing the Old Testament into it before the chief priest. Not only did the light bulb go off finally, but they're like, oh, he's talking about us, right? This is the moment where they realized they were in deep trouble, right? And so, as beautiful as that is, you would think, right? You would think this parable is about them. They're in front of this crowd. They realize they're wrong, They realize Jesus was doing this under the authority of God. This parable is about them. He's quoting the Old Testament. Everything is right that Jesus is saying. And yet they still turn from him. Instead of turning to him, it says they were still seeking to arrest him, but feared the people, for they perceived that he had told this parable against them, which he did. And so they left and went away, which is crazy. Um, And so... As we look at this, we might be like, okay, we understand. The parable was about Israel. It was about the leadership. They had done wrong by the Lord. They're going to be removed and replaced. But how do we draw that bridge to us? How does that apply to us today? And as we dive into that, I think what's important for us is to take one last look at the chief priests and understand that um, they had become indifferent to God's grace. Or I, I just use the it's easy to understand they had become entitled in their own mind to god's grace and so think about it they knew the entire old testament i'm sure there was a point in their lives where they faithfully served the lord they desired him they wanted to serve him they wanted to be a place in leadership to righteously lead god's people and yet what happened is they over time had slowly kind of drifted and they had started to accumulate wealth immorally they had started to be legalistic. They were rejecting the cornerstone, the Son of God, right before their eyes. And so they had, uh, again, what I like to say is they had become entitled to God's grace. If somebody, do you think if one of the poor Israelites had called them out on their corruption that it would have went well? Do you think the chief priest would have uh, accepted some type of accountability or reproof very well? No. No. And that's kind of where we draw this bridge in our lives is we look at sometimes having good intentions, but we look at maybe drifting in some areas of our lives. So just as the chief priest maybe did a hundred things right, we look at just three small areas where they did a lot very wrong, leading God's people wrong. And so for us, maybe it looks like our spouse trying to speak loving to us about our marriage or about an area of our life. And you know how it goes when it's your spouse, even in love and gentleness, when they try to speak truth in you, what happens? We pull out a huge notepad out of our back pocket and say, what about this, this, this? See, look, I've got one for my wife. Just kidding. Never, never. She's not here. She was at 9 a.m., so I could make that joke. But what happens? We get defensive, right? We say, what about you and this and this and this and this and this? And we we don't have ears to hear. It's like, la, 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 you do more wrong than me. We don't want to hear it, right? Or on the other side, maybe if it's not people holding us accountable, maybe it's the Lord himself like pressing on our heart a little bit, our conscience, right? Where we know there's an area that we're not surrendering our lives fully to the Lord or where we need to be corrected, and we just don't want to hear it. And so what happens is when we're holding on to that area of our lives so tight, you know what we're doing right then? What Jesus said in that area is we're rejecting the cornerstone. We are rejecting the cornerstone. And so as we carry on to that, we know if you have a relationship with Jesus, the Bible, Jesus commands us to make disciples, to share the good news, share the gospel. It's, it's said over and over, right? Well, how can we go out into the world and obey Jesus' command, go out and see people that are spiritually dead and are perishing right before our eyes, and in love tell them, hey, you are rejecting the cornerstone. Let me tell you about Jesus. You're rejecting him whether you know it or not. How can we righteously say that when we have this area of our life where we know He's not the cornerstone and we don't want anybody to tell us different? We're too grace-filled to be accountable, right? That's what the chief priests were thinking. I might not have it together in this area, but the Lord's favor is upon me. The Lord's grace will never run out. And that's the whole point. His grace was going to run out. Not that God's not infinite and He had like a limited supply of grace, but what Jesus was warning them is there's going to be a time where the Lord holds back his grace, and he sticks out his hand of judgment. In other words, he was saying you can't just keep on sinning and leading people astray and living your life on the foundation of yourself because judgment is coming one day. And so, you know, I I love this illustration. I think it's really easy for us. So me and my wife just celebrated this past Saturday, make sure I get the date right, even though she's not in here. Um, October 12th, I remember my anniversary, um, but it was our thir- three-year anniversary, so um, we decided to be big spenders and go fancy for our lunch, so we went to Chipotle down in Jack's Beach, and uh, it was crazy. They held the door open. They knew I was a pastor. I didn't need a reservation. It was awesome, right? Just kidding, um, but. As we were driving, um, we kind of came, I think, uh, down Atlantic. So we went down 3rd Street for a good bit. And um, she warned me something that I already knew. She said, hey, do not speed on 3rd Street. The police will pull you over. The speed limit is 35, not 45. Now, I have to say, it sounds like I'm a crazy driver. She actually makes fun of me for driving like a grandpa. So she was just doing this out of love. It's not like because I was speeding. She just said, hey, just, just remember don't speed on third street. And so how silly would it be for me to number one, after my wife's warning to just be blazing 55 miles an hour in a 35 down third street, there's people on bikes, we're going through yellow slash red lights, I'm just driving crazy. And then there's blue lights in my mirror. So I get pulled over and let's just say for the sake of this illustration, it's a very grace filled cop. He gives me a warning. He says, hey, the speed limit's 35, not 55. I'm going to give you a warning this time. Get out of here. And the cop goes and gets in his car, and as soon as he gets in my car, I start my car back up and take off doing 55 again, right? That would be stupid to ignore the warning you had just been given. But that's what's happening two things. One, that's what's happening. Jesus is giving the warning to the leaders of Israel, and they're not hearing it. They just got a speeding ticket, and they're going to go speeding again. They don't care. Their heart's hardened. And for us, this is also a warning in our lives. Are we abusing the grace that God offers? Are we not willing to be held accountable? And let me show you this. When we say we're rejecting the cornerstone, here's what it looks like in your marriage. Jesus is the cornerstone. Your marriage is built on that. In your parenting, Jesus is the cornerstone. A secular job that could be an absolute terrible pain in the behind work environment Still, Jesus is your cornerstone, and it's built on that. How we tithe, how we handle our money, how we handle disputes, every single little area of our life, Jesus has to be the cornerstone that we build our life on. And if not, then what happens is we just become in this kind of autopilot mode of, well, his grace will be good for me, and we don't want to repent, and we don't want to turn to the Lord, and it doesn't end well. So... Let me pray for y'all as we close in this passage. Wow, Lord, 33 verses, quite a bit to unpack, but so much application and truth, the cornerstone, Lord, that Jesus is. I just pray for everyone in this room, Lord, that he might be the cornerstone, not just on Sunday, but seven days a week in every little area of our lives, Lord. And if there's an area we know he's not the cornerstone, may we accept correction done out of love and seek you, Lord and repent of any area that we're not making him the cornerstone. I just pray for blessings over this entire congregation as we go out this week, Lord, making you that cornerstone. In Jesus' precious name, amen.